You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, as part of the Ireland in the World Research Project at UCD, a recording of the launch of Art in the Nation State, the reception of modern art in Ireland. The book was written by Dr. Roisin Kennedy, lecturer in the UCD School of Art History and Cultural Policy, and is published by Liverpool University Press. The book was launched on the 7th of April 2021 by Christine Leach at an online event which was chaired by Professor Regina E. Culleton. Ireland is a small island with a population of less than 5 million. It is the most westerly country on the European seaboard. And as an island can be described in geographical and physical terms as being on the edge of Europe. Being on the edge has also provided the platform for Ireland to create many global links. And also as a very unique background for many literary and artistic works. Migration is central to the Irish psyche, to Irish language, storytelling, artworks, literary works, music, and all of those located at home and abroad. But engaging with Ireland and the world opens up questions and challenges about a number of contexts, including migration, artistic and literary exchanges, cultural encounters, translation, the relationship between empire, colony and nation, and its position within and between Europe and the Anglophone world. This Spotlight series is one of the events that we are going to be organising annually as part of our theme to showcase and collate the main interdisciplinary areas within the theme with international expertise also in specific disciplines. Tonight's format takes the form of the Spotlight on, as I said, our colleague Roisin Kennedy, and the launch of her new book, Art and the Nation State, the Reception of Modern Art in Ireland by Liverpool University Press. Christine Leach needs no introduction as a leading art critic and as a communication specialist, especially to this audience tonight. We are delighted that Christine was able to do this launch and to be our guest speaker. A journalist and broadcaster, Christine has written for the Sunday Times since 2003. She has been a regular voice on RTE TV and radio for more than 20 years. In 2020, she presented a four-part radio series for RTE Lyric FM entitled Ireland Portrayed, which explored some of the ways in which Ireland and Irish identity have been visually represented from the 1700s through to the foundation of the state. In 2019, the 12-part radio series, Through the Canvas, which she co-presented with Dermot McIntyre for RTE Lyric FM, won the silver at the New York Festival's Radio Awards. Her digital series for RTE.ie, 21st Century Ireland in 21 Artworks, became an exhibition which she curated for the Aragal Arts Festival in Donegal in 2019. Her fiction, personal essays, and other writing have appeared in Winter Papers, The Irish Arts Review, RTE.ie, and a variety of artist, catalogue, arts organisation, 
and collection publications. As a critic, she was shortlisted for the Critic of the Year in the News Brands Ireland Journalism Awards in 2018. And as if that wasn't enough, she guest lectures and hosts third level masterclasses and seminars in art writing. She hosts critical journalism classes and seminars and cultural criticism for students studying curatorial practice, creative practice, art history and arts journalism. In 2021, she was elected president of AICA Ireland, the Irish branch of the International Art Critics Association. Please welcome Christine Leach. Thanks, Regina. I was absolutely delighted to be asked to help launch this book. Roisin's book, Art and the Nation State, The Reception of Modern Art in Ireland, is a really exciting addition to the volume and the weight of research and writing that's emerged in, the, in recent years around this subject area. And when Roisin asked me to help with the launch, she sent me this brief description of the book. She said, this book is about attitudes towards modern art in Ireland, and it focuses on key controversies regarding its display and accession to museums. And it makes a great deal of use of media art criticism and the opinions and role of the critic. So as you can imagine, she had me hooked with that. That was a good hustle, Roisin. <laughs> um, as Regina said, I've just been appointed president of the Irish branch of AICA, which is the International Art Critics Association. And the role and the purpose of art criticism is a topic that I've been passionate about for more than 20 years, particularly the role and purpose of public facing mainstream, if you like, um, journalistic art criticism. So that's the type of writing and talking that appears in newspapers and on TV and radio and on the internet now. And it's the type of communication that sees as its audience the general population or the public. So that's something that the British art critic Herbert Reed once said, uh, and I'm describing, I'm quoting from Roisin's book here, he once described uh, the public as the always apathetic public. But a good researcher always asks why, why might an audience be apathetic? And as Roisin points out in her book, Thomas Bodkin's 1949 report on the arts in Ireland recorded that art in 1949 in Ireland was still not taught in primary schools and no Irish university had a history of art department at that time. And he noted the lack of art as a general school subject was resulting in a low standard of students in the College of Art. And you can guess for yourself what kind of students did get access to art education and to art at that time and what that meant for the economic, social and cultural diversity of those who practiced art or who wrote about art or who even encountered it. Roisin's book in its introduction is really worth quoting. On independence, the Irish Free State relegated the visual arts to a subservient position within the educational and cultural hierarchy. In 1922, drawing was dropped as a compulsory subject at primary school level, and it was not put back into the curriculum until 1971. Until the introduction of free second level education in 1967, only those who were attending private religious run schools could avail themselves of art classes. This education system encouraged an elitist engagement with visual art in Ireland, Already associated with the Anglo-Irish and colonialism, art continued to have a rarefied image that marginalised it from the rest of Irish cultural life. And Roisin goes on in the book to say, the neglect of art education had long-term implications for public awareness of the relevance of art and design. In 1961, a group of visiting Scandinavian designers noted that without some reasonably developed form of art education in the various levels of schools in Ireland, it will be impossible to produce an informed and appreciative public. 
Bodkin's report noted how the lack of emphasis on art in the Irish education system had pervaded the entire nation's attitude to the subject. So I say, if we were not learning how to draw, then we were also not learning how to look. And if we were not learning how to look, we were not learning how to see. Roisin's book draws hugely on written responses to art published in newspapers and in journals, and it's highly readable, and it's driven by some of the high-profile controversies and debates over particular artworks, and the reaction to and the reading of them, and their ultimate fates as artworks. And she shows that some things did change. We can contrast the response in the media to the Cubist abstractions of Mane Jellet and, and D.B. Hone, which they showed in the 1920s, with the more than 36,000 people who went to see the Rusk exhibition of modern art at its height. And Roisin notes that while the media and a lot of the artists were still engaged in the politics and the power struggle of the academic versus abstract art debate of this, in the 60s and the 70s, the public was actually delighted by the opportunity to see a volume of modern art in person at the Rusk shows. My own fascination with this book is very much connected to the way in which its existence highlights the importance of newspaper journalism as art criticism. The value of a record of the contemporary response to the art, the mood, what caught the public attention, what became controversial or what was hotly debated and what that might tell us about who we were and who we are now. It is a bit of a cliche to say that journalists write the first rough draft of history, but it's also a useful truth. And contemporary art critics write about art in the now as they encounter it. Within that, then, you have questions of power and control and politics and also questions of taste, which Roisin writes really interestingly about uh, as a judgment criteria in the second last part of the book. And we have to remember it's not just about who gets to make the art or who gets to see the art, but it's also about who gets to write about the art and who then is reading about it, who shapes the public discourse. The idea of Irish art as existing outside of an international context and also as existing within Ireland as a niche interest or activity, so the marginalised within the marginalised, and also within that boasting its own levels of marginalisation in terms of who gets to participate. It's like a nesting doll situation. There are the voices that are heard and the stories that prevail. And the fact that a snappy negative quote in a newspaper might be more memorable than a heartfelt defense of a piece of art or an artistic movement. Thomas McGreevy writing in the sole issue of the Dublin journal, The Claxon, which was the first little magazine to be published in the Irish Free State, defended Mane Jellet's decoration painting in 1923. But what we recall is that the Irish Times labeled it as an abomination. The book follows a broadly chronological form. The section on censorship looks at moral judgment and the role of the Catholic Church and the foundation of the state and independence. And there are sections on endorsement and promotion, which look at the desire to equate artistic output with Irish identity, or as Roisin puts it, as a conveyor of the national spirit. There's more politics and the emergency, otherwise known as World War II. The next section, negotiation, looks at the importance of international relations and reputation. And the final section, facilitating, looks at some of the gender issues. I think about what is missing from the archives and the records when writers like Roisin go to do their work. The dinner table conversations, the things that are said on the street, the words spoken between friends who are standing in front of a painting. What comments were made in the pub by those who read the art criticism that appeared in print a few paragraphs away from a news report or an account of a sporting event? These live line kind of contemporary accounts of responses to modern art, I wonder about them and what did the public really think? 
And when we think about the importance of writing and language to Irish identity, what might all of this mean in the context of critics who are competing to publicly put words on visual things? Some critics are most interested in articulating the creative act or the origin of a work of art, and some are more interested in analysing the object itself or its concepts. As a critic, personally, I'm most interested in the moment of encounter. So sometimes that's as a communal or public experience, and more often it's as a personal one. Um, but as we know, the personal is political and vice versa. And I think the best criticism manages to craft a combination of these things while always leaving the door open for another angle or another response. Roisin's book highlights how a desire to read art as a statement of national identity limited its potential wider interpretation in Ireland. It's curious how an insistence on looking at the context, environment, origins and politics might actually stop us looking at it as art in the context of art. I'm struck reading this book by how we constantly looked at how the outside world might be influencing Irish visual culture negatively or positively and never really considered how or if we could influence outwards. I'll come back to the value of learning to draw us uh, in the same way that we learn to write, um, the value of teaching visual analysis in the same way we teach reading comprehension to everybody at school. And if we're not drawing, as I said, we're not looking. And if we're not learning to look, then we're not learning how to see. And we're also not learning how to be audience. Roisin notes that Bodkin's report led directly to the setting up of the Irish Arts Council in 1951, and this book is great on the politics involved there. But as she writes, the situation that Bodkin described had repercussions for critics, for artists and for the public right into the 1950s and 60s. And yet, and yet, this book reveals much writing and much debate in the media about art in the period from 1922 to the 1970s. And I was only half joking about the Liveline response, but the radio archives seem to be largely lost. And I know that many of the art of the figures who appear in this book appeared on radio also to talk about modernism and art, including artists like Mamie Jellett. Um, if critics write or present the first version of art history, they are a link between the public and the art. They're a conduit for debate and interpretation, but also to my mind, the critic is a fulcrum to encourage more looking. We see Ireland become more urban and more cosmopolitan towards the end of Roisin's book, and we see increased public engagement. And yet the idea of Irish art as inferior or minor persisted. Roisin writes, widespread media coverage of the arts and attendance at exhibitions of international art in Dublin show the Irish public were curious about contemporary European and American art. The state also recognised visual art had a role to play in presenting a positive image of Irish culture to an international audience. This didn't stop the politics or the debate, of course. In fact, it made the politics all the more heated. The final part of the book is called Facilitating, and it focuses on women and modernism in Irish art. And I'm curious about why Roisin structured it in this way. She writes that over the time frame of this study, Evie Hone and Mamie Jellett's work aroused bafflement and scorn, followed by profound respect and appreciation. But by the 1970s, despite the artist and critic Brian O'Doherty's praise, their work was widely seen as generic Anglo-Irish female art and dismissed as decorative and compromised. When Nora McGuinness stepped down after 28 years as president of the Irish Exhibition of Living Art in 1972, along with the resignation of her committee, this marked the end of the only female-dominated institution connected with visual art in the state at the time. 
The committee was replaced by an all-male executive and within two years, only three women were included in the IELA show as opposed to 28 women being part of the show a decade earlier. The final section of the book looks at the reception and indeed the production of Irish art as a gendered battle. And it also considers the public facing work of Mani Jellett in particular, lecturing, teaching and writing. Roisin writes that Jellett's campaign for modern art came from a moral sense of responsibility for her beliefs and for explaining them to the wider public. And Jellett also stressed the role of the viewer and believed in art as having a fundamental social purpose. It's really fascinating to see how gendered this debate over the canon ultimately became. Recognition of the role of women artists and the value of their contribution to modern art is a, is a distinguishing feature of Irish art, as Roisin notes, and yet the most disparaging language and marginalisation was heaped on the female artists. It's also really fascinating to note that Cubism was seen as springing from reason rather than the imagination. George Russell wrote that in 1927 when he was describing the Cubist movement as wrong-headed. But the later work of Jack B. Yeats, messy, unrestricted, passionate, expressionist and driven by imagination and feeling, was ultimately lauded. Imagine if the women had been the ones making the messy emotional work instead of following logical paths. There's lots more to unpack here, as you can see. In 1961, Desmond Fennell wrote in the evening press that he could not believe the tasteful panel decorations by sentimental women were the summit of what Irish painters could do. This book takes us right up to the 1972 Irish Exhibition of Living Art, which Roisin notes heralded a sea change in Irish visual art, including time-based and installation art. There was overtly political work too that addressed the situation in Northern Ireland, as well as conceptual art. The first two Irish artists to be included in Rusk five years later in 1977 were Patrick Ireland and James Coleman, who showed conceptual work. And Roisin notes too the founding of Circa magazine in 1981, initially a Northern Ireland publication. It rapidly prompted an all-Ireland discourse on visual art among younger artists and critics. Roisin writes, the younger generation's ignorance of modern Irish art sprang from its lack of display in public museums and galleries, which should have facilitated the construction of a broad canon of Irish art. Instead, small elite cliques controlled the formation of the national collection and shaped public access to it. And if you want to understand how all of that happened, then you're going to have to read the book. <laughs> um, I'm really delighted to launch this book this evening. I'm going to finish up there and I want to say congratulations to Dr. Roisin Kennedy on this publication and thank you all for your attention and for listening. Thank you, Christine. I think you have really uh, set the scene. We look forward now to hearing from the author. Roisin is a lecturer in the School of Art History and Cultural Policy at University College Dublin. Roisin is a former Yeats curator at the National Gallery of Ireland and of the State Collections at Dublin Castle. She has curated several exhibitions, including Masquerade and Spectacle, the Circus and Travelling Fair in the work of Jack B. Yeats at Compton Verney and the National Gallery. The Fantastic in Irish Art at the National Gallery of Ireland, and along with Neve McGuinn and Aoife Ruan, Bristle Hair and Hegemony at the High Lanes Gallery in 2017. Her research focuses on art and politics, the critical reception of modern art in Ireland, and on censorship. She has published widely in edited collections, including Atlas of the Irish Revolution in Cork University Press in 2017, 
Modernist Afterlives in Irish Literature and Culture in Anthem Press in 2016, and in peer review journals such as Third Text, Visual Resources, and the Journal of Art Historiography. She is co-editor and contributor to Harry Clark and Artistic Visions of the New Irish State, published by Irish Academic Press in 2018, and Censoring Art, Silencing the Artwork with Taurus in 2018. And again, another very accomplished uh, speaker tonight. Uh, she has just finished editing an anthology of writings on Irish art, Sources in Irish Art 2, a reader with Fintan Cullen, which will be published by Cork University Press later this year as well. So it, it doesn't stop here, it goes on. So Roisin Kogarjahas, Agus Fakime and Thurler Hogathanesh, we're looking forward now to hearing uh, your own thoughts, Roisin. Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by thanking Christine Leach for agreeing to, to launch the book and actually for doing such a brilliant, amazing job. Thank you so much, Christine. I asked you under very, the current conditions, which add considerably to everybody's workload and uh, come with none of the rewards of travel or socialising or meeting old and new friends. So, um, I really, really appreciate the thought that you have given to this and you, you've done a really wonderful job. Um, I'd also like to thank Regina for agreeing to chair the launch and for including it as part of the Ireland and the World Research Strand in the College of Humanities here in UCD, um, which is a very important initiative and one that I really look forward to participating in. Um, and Regina, again, to take on something like this at the moment is, you know, I really, really appreciate it. Um, I also like to thank the Humanities Institute at UCD for facilitating the launch and especially Valerie Norton and Ricky Shun for setting up the Eventbrite and handling the technical side of things. Again, your, your support has been absolutely invaluable. And I'd like to thank Carla Briggs, too, in the School of Art History for publicising the event on social media um, and on the school website. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you so much for being here um, and for, you know, sitting down in another Zoom meeting. And um, before going on to give specific thanks and more thanks, I'd like to say a few things about the book. It's taken a long time to complete it um, and to get it published for various reasons that I'm not going to go into at the moment. But COVID finally enabled me to complete it and to send it off to Liverpool University Press whose editor, Alison Wellesby, had been patiently waiting for it for several years. Um, this event is simply about marking this achievement, bringing so many people together, really. And the book contains research that goes back 20 years to when I was doing my PhD here in UCD and working my way through the microfilm and microfiche and hard copies of newspapers and periodicals in the National Library where um, I pretty much lived while I was doing my PhD. And I continued to live there, like many of us, until COVID forced us out in March 2020. Um, so when I began working on this, I was working in the early years of the digital revolution. And really, the revolution came just a little bit too late for most of my research. The thesis was about the role of art criticism and art writing in Ireland in the 20th century. And I quickly realised that in the early and mid-decades of the century, there were copious amounts of art reviews and discussion about modern art 
um, in all sorts of newspapers and journals, much more than one finds in the media of the last 40 years. Modern art by Irish and international artists was news in Ireland. Um, and often it was front page news. There were several major controversies concerning the display of modern art over the decades, such as the rejection of George, of George Ruo's Christ and the Soldier um, painting by the Municipal Gallery of Modern Art, the Hulane as we know it now, in 1942, and Henry Moore's reclining figure in 1954. And both of these were major media events, and the coverage of them was engineered, I, I speculate in the book, uh, by supporters of modern art. Uh, they deliberately got these events on the front pages, um, especially the members of the Friends of the National Collections of Ireland, which was dedicated to ensuring that public galleries in Ireland would have a representative collection of modern art. Other major controversies, such as the rejection of Harry Clark's Geneva window in 1930 by the Irish state, was barely mentioned in the media at the time. But through the archives of official and private correspondence in the Hugh Lane Gallery, in the National Library, the National Archives, and the archives of the International Labour Organisation in Geneva, it was possible to piece together the details of this fascinating story of diplomacy, statesmanship, and personal tragedy. Many of these controversies, like that surrounding the Geneva window, went on for decades and have arguably never been properly resolved. One that, ha that has been is that surrounding Andrew O'Connor's Christ the King monument, which now stands resplendent next to the imposing DLR library building overlooking the seafront in Dunleary. Its story goes back to the First World War. It spent time buried in France during the Second World War. It was temporarily erected in the grounds of Archbishop McQuaid's palace in Drumcondra. And for many years, it rested recumbent in the back garden of the Kenny family home. Um, and the family later donated an, donated an amazing archive of papers and letters related to this complex history of the sculpture to the DLR, which I was able to access. In the 1950s and 1960s, what was perceived as the, provin the, the provincialism of Irish art became a source of great concern to collectors, artists, intellectuals, and even politicians. The new entrepreneurial climate of the, of the 60s, the La Masse era, meant that artists, like business people, had to be au fait with what was happening internationally, and that included international modernism. Um, as Christine has mentioned, the Irish public flocked to the Rosk exhibitions of the 60s, of 67 and 71, and the media was dominated by modern art. But this period was also beset with controversy and debate within the art world, with increasing animosity voiced towards what was seen as the neo-colonial tradition of Irish modernism. The troubles in Northern Ireland, the decline of the modern movement internationally, and the art student rebellion in the National College of Art precipitated a new period in Irish art in which the broader political contexts and purposes of art making were increasingly but reluctantly, but reluctantly acknowledged by some. So this is what the book is about. Through specific controversies, it tells the story of modern art in Ireland. Um, it's not a story of styles or, or a story of biographies, but it's one that's embedded in the development of the modern movement from its utopian ideals in the 1920s to its domination by market forces in the 1960s to contention in the 1970s. 
And it's also about the story of the emerging Irish state with all the attendant contradictions that it encapsulated. My book is indebted to the bedrock of research of Nicola Gordon Bowe, of Brian Kennedy and the other Brian Kennedy, of Hilary Pyle, of John Turpin, of Fintan Cullen, of Sheila Brannock Lynch, of Paula Murphy, who is my supervisor of, of my PhD thesis, was my greatest critic and teacher, and Catherine Marshall, who has also been a great teacher and mentor to me. It's also influenced by the critical writings and ideas of Lucy Cotter, Fiona Barber, and Gavin Murphy, and various contributors to Circa right through the years, and is indebted to the thoughtful art historical investigations of Rianne Coulter, Dickon Hall, Brenda Moore McCann, and to conversations with William Gallagher, uh, and to many others. I, I'd also um, acknowledge those who enabled me to develop my ideas through publishing my work. Cormac O'Malley, Emer O'Connor, Yvonne Scott, Lisa Godson, Sean Kassan, Peter Murray, Christina Kennedy, Angela Griffith, Margarita Helmers and Brendan Rooney. The book is above all, again, as Christine has so beautifully put it, it's really dedicated to the writers and art in Ireland from the 1920s to the 1970s, whose views ranged from the caustic to the strategic to the crusading to the thoughtful. And these, of course, included professional journalists, artists, business people, writers, curators, and numerous freelance critics and writers who were just dipping their feet into art writing. I also want to acknowledge the vital role of archives and libraries in this research. The National Library of Ireland, the National Archives, NIVAL, the National Gallery of Ireland, including the CSIA and the Yates Archive, TriArch, the Harry Clark Archives and the Hugh Lane Gallery, the Archives of the International Labour Organisation in Geneva, UCD Special Collections and Archives, the Dublin Diocesan Archives, and the Christ the King Archive at DLR, um, access to which I thank Marion Keyes and David Gunning. I mean, I look forward to these collections of archives opening up and for them to be properly resourced and valued by the powers that be in the future. COVID has made me and all of us engaged in research realise how significant these resources are to understanding our past and our present. And I, equally, I look forward to museums and galleries opening up because despite all the amazing things the digital world provides, it can never replace the direct experience of the artwork in whatever form that takes. In reading the book, I hope above, above all that you will enjoy, like I have, the complex tales of how art comes to be displayed or hidden and realise that the making of a work of art is just the beginning of the process. It's having the work exhibited, acknowledged, debated, even criticised. And um, that is, you know, the, the difficult part for artists and a, the most significant part of the process. To conclude, I'd like to thank Robert Bala for letting me, uh, or agreeing to let me use his portrait of Gordon Lambert on the cover of the book. Um, I thank my colleague, colleagues in the School of Art History, including my recently retired colleagues, Nikki Figgis and Pat Cook, both of whom have been extremely kind and supportive of my research and of this book. Um, I thank Emily Mark Fitzgerald, our head of school, who suggested Liverpool University Press and who has been an encouraging and generous colleague. And my other colleagues too, I'm not going to mention everybody. Um, but I really do appreciate you. I'm very fortunate to work with such wonderful colleagues in the school, old and new, and also 
to have great students now and down the years who have taught me a great deal about art and some of them are here this evening. I'd also like to thank David Britton in particular for helping me with illustrations and for being so knowledgeable and generous about all aspects of modern Irish art. And I'd like to thank Edmundo Murray for facilitating my visit to the World Trade Organization building in Geneva in 2019 and helping me find the space where Harry Clark had intended to locate his window. Little did I know then that would, that would be one of the last trips that I would be making in a long time. So memories of that have sustained me. I wish also to thank um, in particular Luke Gibbons and Inzana Legarete or Macken for their advice and encouragement at vital moments in the process of getting this book published. Luke has been a great mentor and supporter for many years and uh, to me and to, to others, um, and I'm deeply grateful to him. Um, I'm hoping that I'm not sounding like an Oscar winner, as my daughter warned me about, but I want to thank my parents for their support, and I hope that they've made it on to Zoom. Um, I thank my dad, Dennis, for his constant encouragement and constructive criticism, and as he was a journalist for many years, for always taking both the objective and the critical view on facts. Also, my mother, Catherine, for constantly... Um, completing our telephone conversations over several years with the question, how's the book going? Or how's the book coming along? And to be able to say, here it is, um, is I think a key moment in our relationship. Um, above all, I thank you all, friends, family, neighbours and colleagues for attending yet another Zoom meeting. Uh, I encourage you all to avail of the discount and buying the book, another major motivation for the launch. But even if you if you don't buy it, I thank you for taking the time to be here and I hope you'll read it. Um, finally, I just want to say I look forward to seeing you all in different, better circumstances in the near future. Uh, thank you again for your support and friendship. And in the meantime, I'd ask you to please raise a glass or a cup of tea to art, artists and archives and to the stories that they tell. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.